This is a previously recorded episode. The show is broadcasting live from Detroit Sound Studios above Activate Gaming and is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to the Detroit Sports Rag podcast for Tuesday, November 10th, or as I like to refer it, as Sergei Fedorov's Hall of Fame induction Red Wing promotion day, which uh, Justin Spiro and myself will be attending uh, right after we get done with this podcast tonight at Joe Louis Arena. And we will talk more about uh, the Fedorov celebration this evening and why the Red Wings are not going far enough uh, tonight. Uh, this should be a Jersey retirement party this evening, and it's not. And there's been no official announcement that that's going to occur, but we will get that into that after we discuss some other topics. I now welcome the co-host of the DSR podcast, uh, Justin Spiro, who I should mention... After last uh, Tuesday's podcast, Tuesday night, we went to the Pistons game against the Indiana Pacers and jinxed them, as Jessica, our producer, uh, said that we would. The following morning, you, Mr. Spiro, had what I guess amounts to triple hernia surgery? Triple hernia surgery, yeah. It was, it was supposed to be two, and doctor got in there and I guess found a third that he needed to patch up. So I am walking around with uh, Stoney's posture right now, look like the hunchback from Notre Dame. Yeah, you look all, you look like a ninety-five-year-old man, moving it, very gingerly. Um, yeah, you're, it's, you you made your uh, well. pregnant wife. How many months pregnant? About what six now? Five? Yeah, six, about six and a half. Six yeah. and a half months pregnant. Drive you here, dropped you off, and then I'm going to show for you to the Red Wing game, and then back home. Yep, because uh, I'm a great friend and not uh, Bay, but. Um, so how are you feeling? I mean, you look terrible. Are you on medication for this? Uh, I'm about to about to pop a few pills as soon as you go off on one of your rants. I've not taken any today, but yeah, I'm on some strong pain meds. We were talking about before the show, maybe I should have a beer or two. <laughs> what the hell? Uh, anyone watching on the Periscope right now, uh, you can see all the medications lined up. Yeah, medications, some over the counter, some not. Uh, you know, doing some home remedies as well. I got some herbal stuff here. Uh 
to UEI Gold by Kratora. So I'm on I'm on the strongest shit that Eastern and Western medicine can can produce. All right. So as we stated earlier, we were fully going to have a joyful discussion tonight about you know Federal's retirement. We were going to talk about the five and two Detroit Pistons off to a great start. Um, maybe get into some Tigers off-season plans now that the uh, free agents are eligible to sign with any team and the general manager meetings are going to be starting, I think, what, today or tomorrow or whatever it is. Or maybe they've already started, I don't know. Uh, But we are now, because of an article in the Detroit Free Press, being dragged back into the Detroit Lions vortex. Of course, as you know, this is not news to anyone, but since our last podcast on Thursday... The uh, Detroit Lions emancipated us from Martin Mayhew and Tom Luan. They were axed, and we'll get to that into a few in a few minutes. But we, we're going to talk about an article that Rochelle Riley from the Detroit Free Press, a columnist who is not a sports columnist. Uh, you know, I think she basically writes on general affairs and uh, issues of the day. Decided to write a column saying that, quote, let Jim Caldwell build winning team for the Lions. It's not a long article, but it's one of the most embarrassing things I've ever read in the free press, and that's saying something considering they've employed Seidel, Rosenberg, Album, uh, George Puskas, I could go down the line, Charlie Vincent. Uh, Your thoughts on this abortion of a column, Justin? One of the worst we've seen... And, you know, for those who don't know, Rochelle Riley is not typically a sports columnist. She talks about the Maybe I've, I've seen her write one sports article ever. She, I mean, she's written a few, um, to be fair. Uh, she's popped into the sports column uh, a few times. But, it, you know, she typically focuses on social issues. She takes a particular interest towards issues affecting the city of Detroit, uh, social issues in particular. Race. Race, uh, specifically with race in Detroit, but race really in general. And she is, you know, I I hate to use the term notorious liberal. I mean, you and I are both quite liberal ourselves in a lot of ways. But I I think that's been her platform throughout her career from what I've read of her in the past. I think she's a a poor writer to begin with. But really, the, the topics she chooses are normally not something that comes across our radar she tends to be a Detroit apologist, someone who thinks Detroit is one of the best cities in America still against all evidence. So that's kind of her MO. Uh, I like to avoid her in general. Uh, seeing the article today, you know, it's certainly a departure from her normal Detroit is the best and everyone should be nicer to Detroit column. But I think it's hard to deny that her interjection into this subject was because Jim Caldwell happens to be a black coach. I, and, you know... I, well, we, before you go on, let me read some of this nonsense. Yeah, I mean, let's get into that. Who get, haven't, get, who into haven't, this, get into some of the quotes, yeah. and then I, I want to break down the motivations behind this, this article a little bit. And, and I engaged with her on Twitter, um, which she blocked me. She how abouted me. Uh, because I use the F word. I didn't use it as a derogatory way towards her. Um, but she didn't want to answer any of my queries about this horrid column, which I'm going to read a few passages from. Uh, 
This is a quote from her. First, last season was one of the best the teams had in a long time, and that was because Caldwell found a way to get the best out of Matthew Stafford. Caldwell finished his first season as Lions head coach with the best record of any first-year Lions head coach. Okay, first of all, what team was she watching last year? Matthew Stafford severely regressed after losing Scott Linehan as his offensive coordinator from under the Jim Schwartz uh, era. The reason the Lions didn't win a playoff game last season, the reason the Lions didn't have a better chance to go to the Super Bowl is because Matthew Stafford underachieved and that offense was lousy. They had, as you've said on previous podcasts, one of the best defenses the Lions have ever had as a franchise, maybe probably in the top three or four, and they didn't win a playoff game because the offense stunk. And this year, it's even gotten worse. So to say that he's been getting the best out of Matthew Stafford is not only idiotic, it's just factually, plainly fucking wrong. And you see one column after another, what's right, and specifically national columns, asking what's wrong with Matthew Stafford. And Jim Caldwell was here to fix him, and he's been made worse. So you have to wonder, where is Rochelle Riley on this? She clearly has not been paying any attention. She swooped in out of nowhere. It's kind of like an even worse version of when Mitch Album comes down from, from Mount Arrogant and Mount Condescending and bestows upon the people his great, strong knowledge of sports. Who is Rochelle Riley? She she has no clue what she's talking about. Clearly, the narrative in Detroit and nationally is what is wrong with Matthew Stafford? Should they move on from him? Is he fixable? People have opinions on both sides of that argument, and I understand the argument for both, for keeping him, for moving on. What I don't understand is this on an island stance that he's been good. For all the disagreement about Stafford of – is it his fault? Is it the offensive line's fault? Is it Martin Mayhew's fault? For all those debates, the consensus seems to be he hasn't been very good. And, and she's trying to state that Caldwell has this impeccable uh, resume, like his CV is without reproach. This is a man who in his career as a head coach of football teams is 64 and 97. He was horrible at Wake Forest. He took over the team, uh, made them worse. And the year he got fired, they got better the next year. Now, you can say all you want that nobody wins at Wake Forest. Uh, Let me tell you something. If Jim Harbaugh went to Wake Forest, how long do you think it would be before they were top 10 in the country, Justin? Two years? Yep. Okay. Yep. I can go down the list of coaches who, if they went to Wake Forest in that, you know, terribly difficult ACC would turn that program around. He was there for year after year, and they stunk. He had a 30% winning percentage in college. His record as a professional head coach is four games over five hundred now, and he's had a majority or a lot of that time with Peyton Manning as his quarterback, who I don't think anyone in the world would argue is one of the top three regular season quarterbacks in the history of the sport. Anyone going to argue that? Regular season? Yeah. I uh, mean, one of the... He's about to break every record known to mankind, right? Yep. This Sunday. Okay. So to say that firing him after 
this horrible season, this abomination that cost you know the jobs of a family friend of the Fords and Tom Luan and Martin Mayhew, uh, to say that this guy is untouchable because he's got a 48% win percentage in Detroit is a joke. Now, this is where, you know, I don't like playing this race card and saying someone's motivation is race. I, you probably, in your, you've known me for 13 years. You probably could count on one hand, probably less than that, how many times I've ever brought this up in, on the DSR. So this is not something I boi- I, I make as a blanket no, approach. I mean, this is like a, a character from The Simpsons' hand. You wouldn't even need the four fingers. I mean, this is no, I, really Terry Foster's affirmative action hire. By WDFN, which Greg Henson confirmed. Right. Which, That's about which, it. Which is, I mean, literally a fact. And then this. I mean, this is the second time this, this is the second time I've ever. Po- but the, here is why I believe this is all generated by the, her desire that she wants an African-American head coach of the Detroit Lions as an African-American woman, uh, because when I engaged her on Twitter, she said to me that she wanted Osmus fired. Okay, what do Brad Osmus and Jim Caldwell have in common? They both took over a football team, made the playoffs the first season, and in the second year took that team to last place. One guy she wants fired... One guy, she wants to throw a parade and keep him here because he is, and I quote, isn't running an assembly line. He's designed something special. He's designing something special. Nobody can see it. I don't know what the fuck she's talking about. And he's molding effective football players and connecting them with hungry fans desperate for victories. On what planet are you living in? And like I said on Twitter, I'm Jewish. Brad Osmus claims to be Jewish. He was the coach of Team Israel in the World Baseball Challenge or whatever it's called a couple years ago. But just because we are both share the same heritage, you don't see me calling for Brad Osmus to get a five-year extension. I wanted him fired after his first season because I don't view things as a prism from my skin color or my religion or any common background. But please tell me, Rochelle Riley, that you're not viewing this as wanting the one, the first African-American head coach of the Detroit Lions ever in their, I don't know how many, seven, eight-decade run to remain employed solely because he is an African-American gentleman. And, you know, part of her argument in her column, she says, Rod Marinelli got to stay here for three seasons, even though his win percentage was only 21%. And what a terrible argument to make. The Rod Marinelli being allowed to stay here too long is not a reason to stay with another losing coach longer than they should. The fact that she would cite the Lions' prior history as a positive for Jim Caldwell, as an example of what should be followed, is embarrassing. And that's what exactly what she has done here. She's laying out multiple examples of well, this is how the Lions have done things in the past. Why would they go back on that now? Why is that an example that you would want to follow? Why is saying, well, we stayed with Rod Marinelli for three years. you got to give Caldwell at least three. And that third I, year was 0-16. Why, 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 why would you be dipping into the Detroit Lions history as a model of what to follow going forward? That's really what, according to multiple sources, Martha Ford openly resented when she talked to the players in that closed-door meeting with the team. She basically said things 
are going to be run differently from now on, which you can say what you want. That is basically a shot at her husband for her to say things have basically implicitly, but saying things have been run poorly and we're going to go a different direction going forward. And this is going to be a different organization Basically, implicitly bombing her her dead husband, saying right. that things were run poorly. Well, we'll get to that so, in a second, and we'll, we'll get there. I mean, we could talk about this all day long. the 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 actuality is whatever this Rochelle Riley, this embarrassment to mankind, writing this garbage article, just insulting Lions fans, uh, and they're you know, with any you know any hope, Jim Caldwell's not going to be the head coach of this football team next year. There is zero chance, and if he is. It's going to be because Martha Ford ignored what the you know the research firm that she's hired to tell her what to do because it would only be her idiotic love of the man uh, and wearing his religion on his uh, lapel and all that garbage and his prayer on prayer prayer you know study on Wednesday with uh, Lawan and Mayhew which now I guess is a prayer study of one. That would be the only way he's staying, and it would be bombed from about everyone, I can imagine, if, if Caldwell's the coach next year. But I think that's a nice transition into talk about what happened last Thursday and where we are going forward uh, with this franchise. Uh, as I wrote, I think I was the first person to, to break this story in Detroit. There's, there is a chasm between Bill Ford Jr. and his sister, Sheila Hamp. That goes back nine years to when Ford Jr., as the president of Ford, replaced himself with Alan Mulally. At the time, Alan Hamp, Sheila's husband and Bill Jr.'s brother-in-law, was the chief of staff of Ford. His previous experience being running a museum, uh, Greenfield Village. And he was summarily dismissed by Mullaly because he was going to be running the show and nepotism wasn't going to be the centerpiece. That's the first shoe to drop between the Hamps and Junior. The second one was a few years ago before the recession, uh, all the Fords were called into a meeting to discuss basically mortgaging everything to keep Ford Motor Company, a family business, instead of taking making it uh, the, these preferred shares, I believe, open to everyone, which sh- surely someone like Kirk Akorian would have come in and basically bought up all these shares and taken over Ford. And the Ford family would have been on the outside looking in to the company that their great-grandfather built, Henry Ford. Bill Ford Jr., according to a book written by, I think was his name, Bryce Hoffman, who we tried to get on the show today, but he hasn't responded yet, stated that you know the Ford Jr. was all about keeping it inside the family, and the Hamps were looking to do the opposite, which would have led to someone basically corporately you know, raiding. So that's, a, that's, that's clue number two. What's clear is Bill Ford Jr.'s on, on the outs, and the Hamps are right in the air of Martha Ford. And that's where we're at right now, which led to my article stating, with all of this dysfunction in the Ford family, not knowing who's going to be in charge. You've got a 90-year-old woman who's president. There's been rumors that I reported six weeks ago from a very good source that the sisters won out the minute Martha passes away. With this backdrop, can you explain to me, Justin, 
how the Lions are going to hire anyone attractive to come to this mess. I, I don't think they will. You, certainly not anyone at the top of the list. You know, the, those top two or three names you're hearing, you know, Wolf and Polian and basically the second generation of all these other football guys that are so highly regarded in NFL circles as being uh, not just through nepotism, but legitimate good uh, candidates. I don't. I, I think you have almost no chance because these are guys that are going to have options. They don't need to take the job because they can wait a year, two, might not even have to wait to get a job elsewhere in a more stable situation. You saw what happened with the New York Jets with John Idzik and Rex Ryan. They hired John Idzik, and they were the, the candidates were told up front by the owner, we are keeping Rex Ryan. He's your coach. You don't get to pick your own guy. That created a huge issue in New York. John Edzik was feuding with Rex Ryan for that entire two-year period. It was a constant debate of which one was going to get fired first. They ended up getting broomed at the same time. So the top candidates are going to avoid the situation unless I think you make them an offer financially that is just so over the top that they can't refuse. That has not been the Ford's M.O., although they did make Matt Millen the highest-paid executive blindly and also extended him to an extensive uh, lucrative deal in the midst of his failure. But I, I, I do think it's unreasonable to expect any of these top guys to come here under these circumstances. So what you're going to be getting is the B-list candidates, of whom I'm not even sure would qualify. But I, I, I do know the ones that are I'm high. not even sure you're a not B-list gonna, person's going to come Well, here. I think you can get a B-list guy. I don't think you're going to get anyone in your top five. I don't think the director of uh, pro personnel for the Patriots is going to come here. Nick what, Casario and, it, and then Elliot Wolf was the one that Ron Wolf's uh, son you were talking about. Right. And it wouldn't stun me if you saw Pioli, you know, Scott Pioli be in the mix, a guy that was uh, a successful executive in New England, total failure in Kansas City supposedly has learned a lot from his time there. I think that's a guy, the type of guy where he's not the least, that's what I mean by a B-list guy. I think someone that has some upside to him, there's some good background there, but is certainly not the most coveted of executives at this point. I think that's the reality of what you're facing. This is such an untenable situation. Who is going to come in here when they have options, either this you know upcoming offseason or a year later in a more stable environment? I just, I don't see it. And, and that's the thing. And, the, and, and what the major problem that I see is that right before the season started, there was already fractures with this organization. The CFO, a man named Luis Perez, suddenly quit right on the verge of the season starting, right around Labor Day. It was speculated that he was fed up with the family dynamic, that he, I think he was a Ford Jr., loyalist or thought at least that he should be running the team, not the 90-year-old mother and the three daughters. And he quit. And they named this Allison Mackey. They replaced uh, they replaced Perez with Allison Mackey, who's now the acting president of the team, basically. The problem, if you're going to go hire one of these top-shelf executives who everyone's going to want to get, you know that person is going to do their due diligence, and they're going to call this Luis Perez and say, well, what's going on there? And what do you think this man's going to tell him? He's going to say, well, they're owned by a woman who's 90. The son who everyone in this town 
thought was going to be the heir apparent when William Clay Ford Sr. passed away. Could you find anyone in this city who could have predicted this scenario? If three years ago I told you William Clay Ford Sr. was going to die and the daughters and the mother were going to be running the show, you would have slapped me silly and said, what world are you living in? And if I may interject, that the son-in-law of Martha Ford, the husband of one of the daughters, would have not only more pull than uh, William Clay Ford Jr., but significantly more pull. I mean, apparently this guy might be pulling the strings here pretty soon, married into this family. It's it's just shocking that things have shaken out the way that they have. It's almost like it's so crazy that people don't even know how to react. I mean, this was going back to the late 90s. People were looking at the secession plan of Ford Jr. Everything has been thrown on its on its head. He's not he's not involved at all. Zero. Zilch. So someone like Elliot Wolf, who Lynn Hennings were, oh, he'd take the job if offered it. Are you fucking kidding me, Lynn Henning? This guy is going to look into the situation and realize that when Martha Ford passes away, they're most likely going to be sold according to everything we've heard, that the the sisters are going to want out. And I can't imagine they're going to be real enthused about selling to Bill Ford Jr., even if he got together a syndicate to get enough money to do it because they're not even letting him in the door at this point. Uh, the family relations are so toxic that they're not, I mean, not going to do him any favors. That, that's it's the situation someone's... So now not only are you walking into a situation of a franchise that's won one playoff game in 57 seasons, is the laughing stock of the league, is being called by Forbes the poster child for how not to run an organization. Nobody really knows. I mean, we had that dog and pony show where this 90-year-old woman, who we've all been told by the beat writers and all these people, oh, she seemed really together. When we talked to her earlier this year, she seemed like she was really on the ball and knowledgeable. She couldn't read a prepared statement. I I really wanted to get a periscope of my own grandma who's going to turn 90 in January reading that exact speech that she gave to see if she could have done a better job. It, it, it was it, it looks like something out of Saturday Night Live. I'd like to pay Betty White to come here to the podcast Detroit studio and read that research, search, research, search, research speech that she gave. It was it, Bill Keenest, who I don't know how this cockroach kept his job with the bloodletting last Thursday, but he was still there. Do you see him walking her up to the podium so she didn't fall down? And then she got up there, and I've seen ISIS hostages give more believable reads of a speech. This, this is, a, I mean, it's a joke. What are we supposed to think at this point, Spiro? <laughs> I love the... The video, I didn't catch it live, but I love the video of him escorting her up to the podium. Just, it, you know what it looked like? It looked like every grandma <laughs> who was being escorted at a bar or bat mitzvah to light a candle, and they had to have one person 
I, I think help the woman up so she didn't fall down. I think it's great that Bill Keenis is now like the the Waylon Smithers of the Detroit Lions. <laughs> Just he's got to be the yes man to this this old crotchety lady and, and help her around. And you know, it's good. Good Lord, what what an embarrassment! And uh, again, you know, everything we hear is that Martha Ford is very lucid, very direct, very uh, with it, and and that's great. That wasn't but exhibited that, in that, that speech. Exactly. What we saw was not indicative of, of someone that I would say is, is lucid with it. It was and, a fragile and, woman yes. doing the dirty work of her son-in-law and daughter. And let me tell you, you're a coward, Sheila Hamp. You're a coward. And your husband is a coward. Because if you had any balls whatsoever, you would have had a podium set up like the Red Wings do where Chris Illich would have been there. Uh, Mike Illich would have been there. It, it could have been Sheila Hamp, Martha Ford, and maybe even Sheldon White up there. The three of them on a podium, and they could have answered questions. Now, look, I don't think a ninety-year-old woman should be probably getting grilled by by Dave Burkett and Josh Katzenstein and Justin Rogers, right? And I, Mitch I, Album. I, I understand. But Sheila Hamp, Sheila Hamp, yep. should if you're going to be the one who is backstabbing your brother and taking the control of this organization with your husband over a grudge because Bill Ford Jr. wanted to save Ford Motor Company and didn't want to take your advice and because Alan Mulally wanted to get rid of your husband because he didn't want nepotism running, you know, a billion-dollar auto company. Because if your petty grudge, you've now taken... So you go up on the podium. You answer the question, Sheila Hamp. You're not, you're not a fragile old lady. You're the one who's orchestrating this. And if the fans of this franchise, the 60,000 people who still show up every Sunday, the people who watch on TV, buy the fucking uniforms, you go up there and answer the questions. You coward. It's like everything else in this town. There's just no accountability whatsoever. And, you know, I, you know, and this is coming, this venom's coming from someone who's cashed out on the team. I'm looking for, you know, I'm hoping this research firm does get someone good because I want to root for the Lions again. As I said uh, on Ryan Schuling's program, a 92-1 in Lansing on Thursday when I was on, you know, I feel like this is not with, you know, not without my daughter, where Sally Field, that movie where she had to go get her kid from Iran because the husband took it. I feel like I'm being emancipated and getting my football team back, but I know this family and I know that we still have a long way to go before that occurs. And, uh, you know, not to bring up the whole Tom Juan, Martin Mayhew thing again in any great detail, but I did want to point out how fitting for those guys to slink off with an official prepared statement. I mean, for Tom Juan to issue a generic, appreciate the opportunity they gave me statement and just slink off. I, I know. It's, well, you know they're not going to burn any, especially the Juan. He's this. That's a political. No, I'm not saying they should burn any bridges, but I'm just saying to slink off, not really talking to anybody. They I'm never not, talked to anyone when I, they were here. That's what. I, but uh, you know, at least I'm not saying have a press conference. I remember when Rick Carlisle was fired and he sat at that uh, desk with Joe Dumars at the practice facility and, and took questions. I thought that was the classiest, one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Carlisle sitting next to the guy who fired him. I'm not saying Tom Juan had to do that, but at least make yourself available to the media for some of their stories. He consistently, from what I was told, referred to his statement and said he would not 
be commented right. any oh, further. He's not, he never I, I'm, not, I'm not saying you he has to burn any bridges, but he's going to end up here's one what's sentence what's about I wish I had done a better job. It always give me that. Even Matt Millen, the scumbag that Matt Millen is, has said repeatedly, said when he got fired, has said repeatedly in the years since, has said I did a poor job, I would have fired myself. He has apologized for the job he did in Detroit, says he feels bad about it, he still roots for the team and whatnot. At least give these fans an apology and say we wish we had done a better job. I, I, I just wanted to put that I mean, that's not going to do me any good. And I'll, I'll tell you where good, I'll but tell you have, where some, Tom, have some integrity. I, I'll tell you where Tom Lewan Jr. will probably end up. He'll end up in the Mike Duggan uh, political uh, machinery. He'll end up as in, in politics somewhere. Yeah, he'll he'll land somewhere. I oh, mean, yeah. a guy like that is, yeah. you know. Even though, as I was told by a source close to Lewan's, uh, you know, friends of Lewan, that he is not he is not whipped his and this is the quote substance abuse problem unquote not alcohol that's what i was told last week that his friends are still concerned about what's been going on with him that they thought that the dui a few years ago up up north would be a wake up call i'm told by sources that it wasn't so basically this franchise the president of this team is someone who's got a substance abuse problem for the last few years. I wonder if that had something to do with it, and I do believe that Lawan Jr. is looked at as a Bill Ford Jr. loyalist, childhood friend, and I think he got canned because of his association there, and it was part of it might have been out of spite because you could have made a case, I'm guessing the Fords could have made a case that you're going to have nothing to do with the football operation, but you can still have something to do with you know running the building and things like that. And he's yeah. gone. So who knows what's going on? We'll never know. Like I, like we always say in these situations, I wish we had a John U. Bacon who covered the Lions yeah. like he does for U of M and could write a book and in about a year we'd find out everything that happens. Or someone like James Miller who covered, you know, who wrote yeah. the SNL. John, I mean, those guys would get to the bottom of this. We're never going to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, it just, we get bits and pieces. I, I think your argument that it could possibly be out of spite keeping Juan out, I, I think there's some merit to that. I don't see why they couldn't have kept Tom Wan on to sort of acquiesce to Bill Ford Jr. just as the party planner at Ford Field. By all accounts, he's done a nice job. He's pulled in a lot of events there and whatnot. An absolute disaster from the football side. But you know, well, we're I'm glad he's gone. I mean, we're both oh, glad. Boy, boy yeah. me, we're very right. glad he's gone. <laughs> I, I'm just saying from the Ford's perspective, they could have easily, if they wanted to, acquiesce to Bill Ford Jr. at all just sort of reassign Tom Wand. I, I think that was a little bit of a middle finger to him as well and really proof positive that what we've heard from him is correct, that he has pretty much nothing to do with that organization at this point. Right. It's What happens next is going to be very intriguing, and uh, we will be paying attention. Hopefully they get it right by accident because that's about the only way I, th- I can see this working out. So. That's the Lions discussion. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will talk about Sergei Fedorov, his induction to the Hall of Fame over the weekend with Nick Lidstrom, and being honored at the Joe tonight. This is a previously recorded episode. Back on the DSR podcast, Jeff Moss with Justin Spiro. He is at Darko State News on Twitter. I feel like I'm co-hosting a show with Terry Foster as uh, Spiro, during the show, is arguing with people on the DSR message board, the Darko message board. 
uh, about the Missouri situation. So I don't have his full attention tonight, and he's also on pain medication, so I apologize for his performance. 28% of my normal production level, I feel like, so... (laughs) I feel like I'm doing fine, though. You know? Yeah, you're doing good. I don't. If you had not said something, right I didn't there, know. I, I, I think. Uh, I think you know people would not have picked up on that. So you know, what, let's let's set this federal off issue. It's something that is really a, in your little Twitter bio, which is very limited in terms of characters. You have retired ninety one. It has been a platform you have have been on for a long time. Sergey Fedorov is probably the most misunderstood, least appreciated supreme athlete in this city's history. Uh, I I don't think there's really even an argument for that. Can you talk about why you think this number is not already retired and if you think it will be going forward? Well, as you stated, it's basically my cause celeb. I mean, there's nothing sports-related that I care more about than seeing Sergei Fedorov's uniform retired in front of a bunch of drunken downriver fans who will be booing him at the time that it occurs. Um, he's my favorite athlete of all time, surpassing even Barry Sanders. Um, I think he was the best forward that's ever played for the Red Wings in my lifetime. I can't judge Gordy Howe because I wasn't, I didn't see him play. I did actually see him play in an all-star game at the Joe for the Hartford Whalers, but that was not exactly in his prime. He was balding and gray. Uh, I, I will go to my dying days thinking that Sergei Fedorov was a better all-around player than Steve Eiserman. No one will ever convince me otherwise. The man played here for 13 seasons. Without him, they never win a Stanley Cup. We'd be going on, uh, what, 50-plus years since the last Cup if it wasn't for Sergei Fedorov. Um, he was arguably the greatest playoff performer in the history of the Detroit Red Wings. His points per game uh, reflect that. So it all boils down to the divorce when he left. And depending on who you believe, it was either you know Fedorov's fault or Illich's fault. Uh, originally, everyone thought it was Fedorov who wanted to leave, we found out in subsequent years that basically Mike Gillich pulled the deal after Sergey decided he was coming back to Detroit. So it all revolves around that. It's an absolute embarrassment that tonight they're giving out a poster or something and honoring Sergey Fedorov for his Hall of Fame induction and that the, his 91 is not going to the rafters this evening. It's a joke. And it's because Mike Illich is stubborn and bitter. You know, the argument we've heard for years about the Tigers, and it's ridiculous that the reason Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell's numbers aren't retired is because they're not in the Hall of Fame. Now, we can get that to that in a few minutes, maybe. We'll even discuss that. But that's a joke, okay? Sergei Fedorov is now in the Hall of Fame. He played 13 years here, the same amount of seasons that Isaiah Thomas played with the Pistons. So it's not exactly like a limited amount of time. Yes, he left under bad circumstances, whatever story you believe, but it's time to bury that. He's embraced the Red Wings. He's played in the uh, alumni Winter Classic games. He's done his, you know, he's kissed the ring of Mike Illich, so to speak. Retire his fucking number. 
And if you don't retire his number, the numbers that are in the rafters at the Joe Louis Arena and the ones that are going to go up in the new place mean less than they should if you're not going to honor one of the greatest players to ever play for that franchise. And, you know, I think what, even if you want to say bury the hatchet and move on from whatever grudge there is, you have to look at what the source of the grudge is to begin with. What were Sergei Fedorov's sins here? The, all he did was, in a period of unrestricted free agency, negotiate with other teams and come close to a deal with another organization. This isn't a guy that betrayed Mike Illich's trust somehow or or was involved in, in a drug deal across the border like Mike Richards. Or I mean, What were this guy's sins? His sins were pursuing options during free agency. And, and I think there was some lingering resentment from him pursuing a restricted free agency contract with the Carolina Hurricanes a few years prior. But that that's right. That's all, all he petty. did. I mean, that's all, all he, petty. That's all he did. It, so this entire this perception of, of lack of loyalty uh, from the Red Wings fan base that that decries any celebration of Sergei Fedorov that it's somehow disloyal to after 13 years of service with a team to negotiate with other teams. This is a guy who ultimately came back and said, "I want to come back and play with Detroit." And you see, it came out a few years later. His agent said that at the time when he signed with Anaheim. It was known pretty much at the time that Detroit pulled their offer. So, you know, that was made public and never denied. He made it public that he wanted to come back when he was with Columbus. And they were out of the playoffs, and the Red Wings were going— we had a very good team that season. Fedorov made it public that he wanted to come back to Detroit. Then he ended up getting traded to the Washington Capitals for some kid from Notre Dame who never made the NHL, who stunk. It wasn't a top prospect. The Red Wings could have easily topped that. Uh— Sergey Fedorov's done everything possible over the last few years to make this reconciliation possible. And let me just read something to you that I, in my article I wrote earlier this year when he was inducted in the Hall of Fame. Uh, just one stat, okay? Listen to this. In the long history of the NHL, only three players have scored 20 points or more in four straight postseason runs. The list, Brian Trottier, Mike Bossy, and Sergey Fedorov. Those are the three guys in the history of the league to score 20 points or more in four consecutive playoff runs. You notice I didn't mention Wayne Gretzky or Mario Lemieux or Gordy Howe or anyone else on that list. Uh, Gordy Howe wouldn't be in there, but given the era. But well, there were points that were, I mean, there, were, they didn't there weren't play many four, that they didn't games. Play, that's they true. didn't play that's four rounds. Yeah, that's but, true. But, but, but so just... The fact that Gretzky, Messier, Tekin, and I mean, none of those guys, Curry, Curry you, you know, go on and even, on. Even Coffee as a defenseman with the numbers he was putting up at the time. And it's just, it's unbelievable that he would be, honestly, I'm surprised there's that few, but that he would be Three. on a, it, it's just, and, and this Federer, is the guy who fans said didn't give 100% effort. Those losers down there who booed him when he came back. Uh, uh, That's why it's so important to me because. He was disrespected by this dumb fuck white trash fan base after he left. Martin LaPointe comes back to Detroit, leaves under the same exact circumstances, basically. Actually, worse. LaPointe left for money. He went to Boston for solely cash. He comes back in the Canadian boy. He gets a, you know applause and cheers. Fedorov comes back. He gets booed on every single shift he had with Anaheim. I was wearing this jersey to the first game he came back. People were throwing shit at me. 
trying to pick fight, bumping me on the way out, trying to get a, me into a fight with them. This is a guy who won three cups after a drought, the same drought basically now that we have with the Tigers, right? Yep. As the Red Wings had. We were so desperate. People forget now. We were desperate for a championship. We got good. We lost to the Devils in a sweep. We got beat up by the Colorado Avalanche. Chris Draper's face got smashed by Claude Lemieux. We thought it was never going to happen for us. And then we did it in 97, a large part because of this man who's being honored tonight, who is now in the Hall of Fame. These derelicts booed him. And it's, that's why it's so important to me that he's in the raft. His jersey is retired because they all have to, should sit there and watch that jersey go up and think about booing a man who brought you so much joy. Three rings. We, to give you a little perspective on Fedorov, from, from my point of view, our good friend Jack Johnson of the NHL's Columbus Blue Jackets, who made his NHL debut at the LA Kings in 2008, I flew out to L.A., went to his first game in March. Uh, he played five games at the end of that season. And we sat in the, uh, not owner's suite, but the uh, general manager's suite. And I sat next to Luke Robitaille for the entire second period and probably annoyed him to the point of harassment, asking him about the 2002 Detroit Red Wings and about what a great group it was and what kind of a guy Brett Hull was, things of that nature. And I asked him about Fedorov. I, I, I asked him, more of a general question of who did you think was the best player on that team? And he said, honestly, tie between Sergei Fedorov and Nick Lidstrom. But Sergei Fedorov, he would have to say, was the best player he ever played with. Now, this is a guy who played with Wayne Gretzky, who played with Steve Eisenman. Yari Curry. Some of the greatest players. Nick Lidstrom. I mean, Nick Lidstrom, who he said was you know right up there. But he said if he had to pick one, he would pick Sergey Fedorov, and I, I, I said, "Did you find him to be lazy?" You know, that was the the sort of thing in Detroit was that he was lazy, didn't try hard. He said Sergey tried just about as hard as anybody on the team. There were nights where he just didn't have it; he wasn't into it. But he said that is anybody on a team on an eighty-two game schedule. He was sort of pacing himself, but he said Sergey didn't try any less hard than anybody. And the reason why people think that, according to Luke Robitaille, a fellow Hall of Famer, is that. He could skate so effortlessly and could glide so so easily that it almost looked like he was loafing. Just he was so naturally gifted. He said Sergey was the most talented and best player he had ever played with. He said that was the first forward I would take that I've ever played with if I were starting a team trying to win a Stanley Cup. He said Sergey Fedorov over Lemieux. And this, he played with Lemieux in Pittsburgh, played with Gretzky in L.A. I mean, this this guy has been with the best of the best. He said Sergey Fedorov was the most gifted he had ever played with. Well, that and rap it, of him being lazy was by a bunch of hillbillies who were biased against Russians. Even though the Russian five is a reason that we've had so much success over the last couple well, and, decades, and were, but they, they there were pe- games. There were games. I, I thought Robitaille made a great point. Is there were games where he was out of it, but that's anybody. I last, mean, last night there's games that Ovechkin. Those Justin, games that Ovechkin last is night I'm listening to the radio broadcast of the Pistons, and Rick Mohorn and Mark Champion were openly saying that Andre Drummond did not have the energy. Yeah, it just happened. It just that's professional hey, you know, sports. We, we, but nobody was is is going off on Andre Drummond saying 
he's a prima donna, or it's just that's just the facts of playing professional sports and going on back to back games. And Fedorov was so talented, and, and the fact that he was Russian, the combination of that he was so immensely talented, and that he was not from here, I think made him the easy poster boy. That when he had those off nights, it's oh, you know, Fedorov. It, it, sometimes those criticisms are legitimate. I thought, well, you know, speaking of the Pistons. There were plenty of nights where Rashid Wallace didn't have it, and that was a valid criticism, and more than just the average guy not being into it. There were more than a fair share of nights where he just loafed and was not engaged. But Fedorov was no more disengaged than anyone else. He had his average off nights and was the whipping boy. You're telling me that Scotty Bowman, the biggest prick coach ever, and I mean that endearingly, but the biggest prick coach ever other than maybe John Tortorella would have – Entrusted Sergei Fedorov as often as he did. Well, what, I, what, what, what I, these what these lunatics, uh, Red Wing fans who booed him, seem to forget is between Steve Eiserman and Sergei Fedorov, only one of the two of those was ever almost traded by Scotty Bowman, and it wasn't number ninety one. It was Steve Eiserman who, before the season that they ended up winning the cup, was basically dealt to Ottawa for Alexander Dague and Stanislav Nekash, and I think another, I forget who else, maybe another prospect or draft pick, to motivate Steve Eiserman to play a two-way game. Scotty Bowman never had to try to do that to Sergei Fedorov because he came into the NHL day one as one of the best two-way forwards in the game, and he will go down with Peter Forsberg as being that generation's, and I, I... since then, Forsberg and Fedorov in my lifetime, two best four, two way forwards, guys that you just can't get, you, guys you can't get off the puck. And too. it's no mistake; those uh, two just, teams dominated the yeah. NHL for years. When you have a guy like Forsberg or, or Fedorov, there's you know I, I don't think Host is as good, but Host is sort of in that same mold now, where they're so hard to get off the puck. Yes, good two way forward as well, but just their their best defense is a good offense too. When the puck is in Fedorov's hands in his heyday. You're not taking it from him. I mean, he was just such a dominant force in that league for so long. And just the fact that he would be anything other than roundly celebrated is an embarrassment. I do think the fans have come around, and I think he'll receive a nice reception tonight. We'll see. They'll be booing. I bet you they'll be booing tonight. No, no. I mean, I bet you. One or two, maybe, Mm -hmm. but nothing that will be audible. You know, unless we happen to be next to the one idiot that's booing in there. His reception at the Winter Classic thing was, you know, the alumni game was very positive in Detroit by all accounts. I mean, I wasn't there, but uh, the, the reception sure seemed to be warm, and by all accounts it was. So, I, you know, I think the fans have moved on, but there's this perception of, you know, the fans feel that they've forgiven him. He doesn't need to be forgiven. He should, have, it he, should never have occurred in he, the first he place. Did, he, this guy did nothing wrong. E- even if he did something wrong, I still would forgive him because, I mean, guy, you would think he would have built up some goodwill. This guy did nothing wrong. He pursued his free agency. It's the same thing with the coded racism from Dan Gilbert when LeBron James went to Miami. It's like this uh, perception of him being this runaway slave. It, it, you know, not totally apples to apples, but this perception of disloyalty because you're fielding offers. I, unlike LeBron, Fedorov came back and said, I'm ready to sign, you know, let's go. I'm, I'm ready to come back. It, this guy's only sin was pursuing his free agency and talking to other teams. It's a joke that he was ever vilified. If he had signed and never came back to Illich saying, I want to come back, I still would have remembered him fondly, would have appreciated his, his years of 
of service to the team. And, you know, I, we're not slappies for many athletes, but, I, you know, I know Federoff's right up there in my top three or four. I know he's in your number one. Um, you know, it, it's a short list of guys that we really deify, but he's on that list. And I, I do think it'll be nice to see him get a good reception this evening. We'll see. Um, the reception should be. It'll be very positive. His reception should be that there there should be a jersey hanging down there where he pulls the cord and it goes to the rafters to hang with seven and nineteen and five. Do you, do you think they'll nine. get there? I you never really answered that. Do you think we get there eventually? I, I I don't know. I well maybe when Mike Gillich is gone. But I'm if, not sure it's going to happen. Not, Why is it happening now? Oh, I agree. But if this would be the perfect day, you you kind of lose momentum. Where if it's not done. You know, it's not that it can't happen. The Pistons have been retiring numbers 20 years after guys retired uh, for some of the bad boys. It's not to say it's impossible, but I think the, the likelihood is less the farther away we get from this guy's retirement. If you're 10, 12, 15 years away from when the guy last suited up and 20-plus and years away from when he last suited up with the Wings, I think that possibility becomes more remote. So I think there is a, a, an element of urgency here to get it done. And I, I agree. I think it's a joke. It hasn't been done already, but hopefully we get to that point quickly because I think By we're the way, in trouble. Breaking news on Twitter. Uh, this is a tweet from Bryce Hoffman, who I tried to get on the show to discuss the family dynamic before, between the Ford Jr. and the Hamps. He wrote a book about Alan Mullaly where he discussed that fracture. Uh, this is a quote from a tweet. Sorry, Jeff Moss, DSR. Business is controversial enough. I'm not ready to tackle football. So I guess Mr. Hoffman will not be appearing on any future DSR podcasts, which is a shame because I think he could uh, really. I don't understand his response. You're not asking. He was specifically. Asked, I'm, not, I'm not asking him to break down Riley Reef's uh, offensive line. Tape. His response doesn't make any sense, and it might be worth an attempt to clarify that on your, uh, you know, next tweet to him because yeah. I, I don't know what he's talking about that he doesn't want to tackle football you're literally asking him to discuss things that he's elaborate already on laid out. yeah elaborate. I mean, it's it's territory he's already covered uh we're just asking for uh, uh some clarification and some more color into that story but you know it is what it is i mean i, I don't i don't get what that's about the guy should be willing to appear on something that he you know published it, right it exactly like we, it's not like we read his journal so anyway, you brought up the Pistons, and this town regarding Jersey retirements is absolutely bipolar. It's ridiculous. You've got a franchise with the Pistons who retired Vinnie Johnson's number, the microwave, who was a backup. You know, he was a key member of those teams, but it'd almost be like retiring Chris Draper's jersey or, you know, Kirk Maltby. They've retired Eddie Money's number at the Palace for performing at Pine Knob for so many years. I mean, they retire just about anyone's number. You don't even have to play for the organization. You can be a singer uh, like Eddie Money, and you can get your number retired. Okay? It's a, it's it's the, kind the of... The dancing usher is going to have his number retired pretty soon. Uh, I'm pretty sure Hooper will, will, will be in line, too. It, it, it's really a joke. So you have that extreme with the Pistons, who will basically retire anyone's number from John Bon Jovi to Ben Wallace. And then you have the Illich teams. Fedorov, tonight not retired. Why in the hell are Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker's numbers not retired? Who's making these decisions? It's ridiculous. You should go to a baseball game with your daughter in a few years and be able to show her the numbers of the team so she could ask you, 
Who was oh who was number one? Who was number three? That's to me the main thing about not you know the ceremony even that night, but in fifteen years maybe you have a son and you go to the new Red Wing Arena and he looks up in the rafters and says oh who was Fedorov? That's the honor. Why it's it's baffling to me. Guys with the pedigree, with the credibility and the results. Why Lou Whitaker, Alan Trail? It's 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 insanity to me. Now, I, I'll have to admit, I mean, by the time I started watching baseball, uh, Whitaker was retired and Trammell had a year left. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't see either of these guys at all, let alone when they were in their primes. But just looking at the numbers, which I know is a, a flawed way to look at it without perspective on watching them and their impact on the organization. But is Lou, I mean, Trammell, I get, is Whitaker really? That, oh, let I me mean, tell you something. Whitaker, I, you, Whitaker, have to, you have to enlighten Whitaker here, was right? better than Trammell. Okay. Whitaker, to me, Whitaker was the better. If, if you had a gun to my head and said only one of them could make the Hall of Fame, if you look up Lou Whitaker's advanced stats, Lou Whitaker was a badass. I mean, Lou Whitaker in his last season was putting up like an 850 OPS or something crazy if you look it up. In his last year, the guy was on base yeah, eight, and slow. 890, yeah. Yeah, the guy was a slugging and on-base machine, and he's, he was an excellent um, fielder. I'm looking at his career OPS, so it's 789. Not bad, especially for a middle infielder, and especially in that era when there weren't good hitting middle infielders. But I, I'm not saying he was a bad player. He was obviously very good, but I maybe I'm a snob about it. I just I don't like retiring guys' numbers unless they were profoundly impactful and maybe he, he was. was i mean him I and trammell were i wasn't me. around trust you know, me so they were i'm too young they, for that era but i just look ask at, anyone i mean yeah. the keith laws all it, everyone in the saber metric community believes that, the, that it's ridiculous that trammell and whitaker aren't in the hall of fame i mean it's almost universal uh, and the fact that because of an east coast bias that that you I know i agree with that we're, we're, i mean you if know, trammell and whitaker were Red Sox, Ozzy Smith. Go look at Ozzy Smith's career yeah. numbers. Compare him to, to to Alan Trammell. It's just a joke. Not, not that that's an East Coast bias. That's kind of a backflip bias. Aren't those guys off the ballot now? Whitaker they, like, was off they, after one year. Yeah, they're and, like, yeah. They'll probably. I think they'll Trammell probably get still, in. Is Trammell even still no, on? I think. Isn't he Trammell, done? Maybe Trammell has one more year. I don't yeah, know. But don't know. but Their it's so, so stupid. It's so freaking stupid to to rely on that as opposed to your own eyes. And they should be Hall of Famers, and they should have their numbers retired. Sergey Fedorov should have his number retired. Hopefully one day it will happen. Um, I hope I'm still around to see it. Uh, but the guy's now in the Hall of Fame. You can never take that away from him. First ballot Hall of Famer, mainly for what he did in this city. Uh, do the right thing, Mike Illich or Marion or Chris or whoever the hell is making this decision. Bite your tongue um, for whatever grievance you have against the man. And put his number up there with everyone else. I, quick question before we leave this topic. I'm just curious for your thoughts. If Justin Verlander has, let's say, two more seasons like the one he just had, you know, good, not great, but good. And then number retired. Blows his arm out, whatever. Number retired number for retired. Verlander? Verlander yeah. and Miggy. Really. Well, Cabrera's. Yeah, I mean, Verlander I mean, no and Miggy that. are obvious. Miguel uh, could, die, could die today and right. he'd be a no-brainer. Uh, but, yeah. but, you know, Verlander's going to fall into that. But I think he needs. I think he does need those couple more good years, though. Well, I, if Verlander based, based died the, today, I wouldn't retire his number. Based on what we've seen with Whitaker and Trammell, Verlander's not an instant into the well, Hall of Fame today. So yeah. yeah, I mean, they're basing it that you've got to get into the Hall of Fame. I don't think Verlander would make it if you'll get his no. numbers. Musina's not in, and Musina has, I think, better career numbers than Verlander. Very, very similar. 
you know, Kurt Schilling, kind of the same thing. I right. Mean, Verlander, people – Verlander was very good, but other than those two years, he's been very good, not great. I mean, very good, but not great. Uh, other than that two-year run. So I, I was just curious for your thoughts on Berliner. I think you need a couple more years before uh, I would retire his number. But And the funny thing is this is the only thing that gets me agitated regarding personal achievements because you know I don't care about MVP awards or Cy Youngs or even Hall of Fame because it just, to well, me— that's the, the media voting. But, right. You know, the media votes on all that stuff. I think an organization— Retiring a number is the ultimate sign of respect toward that yeah, player. Yeah, because it's your control. Right. It's and your it, control. And it's, your, it's your organization. It's your control, and it, it's your player, your former employee. I think it's just a heightened level of disrespect. If Alan Trammell doesn't get enough votes because some uh, journalist in Tucson doesn't appreciate his talents or didn't understand his impact, so be it. But I think it's sort of a heightened level of disrespect and I think it's unfortunate when the organization disrespects their own like that. Again, I have to plead ignorance on Trammell and Whitaker. I wasn't around. I don't. I don't. I can't understand. Just trust their me. Impact. They, they should be retired. And that's what everyone seems to say. I, I and I, I think just from looking at the numbers, I think they're borderline just from longevity alone. But both are guys with OPS is seven sixty, seven seventy career, whatever. Not to me a, a slam dunk. Yeah, you got to get his number in the rafters or on the brick wall. And trust me. Field, Just trust me on this one. I'll take All right, we're going to go to a break. When we come back, we will talk about the Pistons start. We will discuss the Tigers hiring another analytics, analytics expert. And this time it's actually a pretty, pretty big move that made some national news. And then we'll wrap it up. And as, as we had to watch Sergei Fedorov get, I don't know, what, a, a plaque. Oh, well. <laughs> We'll be back. A golf class. We'll be back after a short break. Pistons and Tigers coming up. This is a previously recorded episode. Back on the DSR podcast, Jeff Moss and Justin Spiro, Jessica producing. Hey. Hello. (laughs) Cello. Uh, I guess we'll talk about the Pistons. Off to a five and two start. Of course, one of those losses was completely expected. <laughs> they ran into a juggernaut last night. A team that beats everybody off of a back to back. Well, you know, the, a draining back to back too. That front end. They went yeah, rallying they, from eighteen down. Golden State went into last night with a win differential of eighteen points, seven and zero, and we're on a back to back. I mean, I suggested that we just forfeit and not even show up because. You know, only bad things could happen, which kind of occurred. It was shocking. They got Reggie down Jackson. to like three. They, yeah. The deficit was like three with like eight minutes left or something. Then it just blew the doors off. But. Yeah, and then Steve, the Steve Blake experience occurred, and uh, we ended up getting kind of – Get well soon, Brandon Jennings. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what you want to talk about with the Pistons. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned this on 92-1 yesterday, you know, we were saying that the Pistons are the best run organization in Detroit as of now in our in our in our estimation and you know it's starting to come to fruition uh, on the court so i don't know where you want to go with piston talk but well I, really let's just talk about Andre Drummond for a minute i i don't think we fully grasp what we're seeing where this guy goes like 25 and 25 
every other game. And you see it now, and you had a great tweet about it just saying, yeah, you know, Drummond's like 29 and 25 tonight, and everyone's just kind of like, yeah, it's about right. You know, it's the game we went to against Indiana that he had the 25, I think, and 29 rebounds. Yeah. I turned to you like in the second quarter, I'm like, wow, he doesn't really seem to have the energy that he normally does. It's almost, he's a guy that you want to talk about, like Fedorov, guy that can look like they're wolfing, but he's just such a, a specimen. The guy just swallows rebounds. It's like he's always in the right spot. He's just big. I, I think he just has a knack for it. It's like Charles Barkley's rebounding instincts put in a much bigger, more imposing body. I mean, it, he, he is still not in his prime. I mean, for, was he 22? 22. I, he's very close to it. I don't think he's going to get a whole lot better than this, but he's already noticeably better this year than he was last year. His offensive game has become more diverse. He has you know, a, a jump hook that he didn't have in years past. He's so impressive. If he can just become a 50% free throw shooter, I mean, he's going to be averaging, averaging 26, 27 points a game, 15, 17 rebounds. It's, he would be, I mean, I shudder to think, this is the guy who's scoring 25, 27 points a game every other night. Going two for thirteen at the free right. throw line. He's, I mean, he's it, an abortion. Could you imagine? Well, if I he figured goes out six or seven of thirteen. The guy's going to be thirty points a game. Well, I figured it's it out. Insane. I figured out seeing. last year. Okay, last season, if he would have shot sixty five percent from the from the from the free throw line, his average points would have been fifteen instead of thirteen point eight. So one point two point. Um, a game if he was just shot 65% as opposed to what he was. Still, I mean, which honestly, is not 60, good. 65 it's not good. It's actually a, a tad high for, you know, a, a big clumsy center. Those dopes usually shoot high 50s, low well, 60s. Moses Malone, who he's been compared to this week, was a much better well, fight. Anthony, he was in the Anthony Davis is like a point guard at the line, you know. Right. And no one no one needs him to be to be good at the line, but just I mean, I you say 65 50, 53, 54, somewhere in there. I mean, that's all he has to do to basically to where they can't follow him except at the end of games. But, you know, you have these situations where teams are hanging around when they should be getting blown out because they're following him. But, you know, Jasper, who is our sort of Pistons correspondent, Jasper Apollonia, was saying, you know, you're kind of uh, nitpicking by talking about his free throw issues. I don't necessarily think so. No one is saying trade the guy. He sucks. I am in awe of Andre Drummond every night. But I do think he's hypersensitive about this free throw issue. There's sort of a bit. He blocks right, everyone. He, he how abouts everyone. He, he blocks anyone on Twitter who even mentions it. I, they, not people who bomb him. I had heard of stories of people blocking him for just saying, like, hey, you know, like if only Andre Drummond could improve his free throw shooting, he'd be the best player in the game. Like, basically, really nice Block. things. Block. So I, I had an open experiment on Twitter last season where I said, I'm going to try to put it in the nicest way possible and still see if I get blocked. So I had some tweet to Andre Drummond just saying, you know, hey, like, have you ever considered approaching Rick Barry? Like, you know, underhand might be worth the shot. Love you. You're the best. Like, it was intentionally over the top, drooling over how much I loved him. And just, hey, you know, Rick Barry might be able to help you out. You know, give him a call blocked i was blocked within 20 minutes you know it's like literally within 20 minutes i I was gone so you know well okay he's obviously sensitive about it again i think you're at a point now where we're in what year five of his career uh year four or five you're at a point now where the whole you're you're not doing well on the overhand attempt man i mean it's i i hate to be blunt with you 
But if I'm Van Gundy, I'm getting a zero about doing something else. I mean, changing up the routine somehow, if not necessarily going to the underhand. I think the underhand toss is avoided simply out of vanity. I think I could shoot better than Andre Drummond at the free throw line, underhanded or overhanded. You know, when you have a guy that's so gifted that is being hampered so much by that, it's a shame. But really, it it is nitpicking in a way. It would almost Um, be like if Miguel Cabrera... Couldn't th- couldn't like throw from first to second base like he did everything else, but like yeah. when he threw to second base, it ended up like in the uh, in the in, GM in, fountain in the in the yeah in the left field seats or something or yeah I mean that's what it's like I mean the guy is so dominant and for years we said there's only one way the Pistons are ever going to get good again they got to get lucky in the lottery yep. and they never did. But fortunately, so many NBA teams are run awfully because this isn't like 2020 hindsight. We were dancing a jig when Drummond fell tonight. I, I, I mean, we were like, Brian, what? Brian Richard Coburn and I were on the DSR Facebook page just doing cartwheels when Drummond fell. He was the guy we wanted to begin with. He was the only one that was impactful in that draft that had a chance to fall down to that spot. I mean, he was picked eighth. And this no game, ninth was he ninth? He was ninth. Okay, so eight players went ahead so of ninth. him, and the so only eight two, went ahead of him. That's what I'm thinking of. Davis was one, was a no brainer. Was Lillard? Lillard yeah. was a, yeah. He so I mean obviously, and I'd rather have Drummond than Lillard. By yeah, the way. but, but Lillard's but the only at other least one. Portland's like, not committing suicide. No, no. There's other teams that are just absolutely. Well, Drummond's the second best player in that draft, and you got him with the nice. I thought it was eight, but the ninth pick, unbelievable. And that was again, you said not hindsight. That was the guy we said. Maybe he won't be great, but this is the only guy in that spot that is has a chance to be really good. The only knock on him was he was a little bit kind of uh, lazy yeah. and aloof. He's still he's definitely not lazy. He's still a little bit of aloof, kind of a goofball in a way. But uh, you know, God, it, if this guy is lazy, I'd hate to see him when he's trying. I mean, it, it, this the sky's the limit for this kid if he can become competent at the free throw line, just just mediocre, not even good or average. Just if he can become bad, if he can upgrade to bad at the line, it's just it's scary to think. You know, as bad as Shaquille O'Neal was, he was, you know, shooting 57, 58%. I mean, still a threat when you put him at the line. He's got to hit one of them. Well, we've so, seen this you know, team now play seven games. Uh, we thought that they were around a 40-win team uh, coming into the season, probably maybe a seven or eight slot in the East based on the last few years of the, you know, that conference just being atrocious. Uh, where have you adjusted your expectations of the Pistons after a couple weeks of the season? You know, we were saying, we all were saying sort of universally within the DSR that if we were in Vegas, we would hit that over 33 and a half wins hard. But it oh wasn't, be- it wasn't yeah. because we thought they'd be this good. It was because we saw them as a 38-win team. I think my prediction was seen all 37, 38 wins. I thought they'd win several more than 33 and a half. So I thought they were, you know, I'm not shocked that they're doing a little bit better than everyone thought. I'm shocked that they're doing this much better. And, you know, you want to say let's not be a prisoner of the moment, but I think this is legitimate. There's nothing really phony about it. They've, they've only lost to a desperate team that was going to win eventually and has talent and a, the best team maybe in the last 20 years of the NBA who is undefeated and blowing everyone out off a of back-to-back. I mean, and, and they've beaten real NBA teams, teams that are going to be in the playoffs, teams that 
or you know the Atlanta Hawks they're beating they're hammering everybody so you know there's nothing really fake about it and you look barring obviously an injury which is the caveat you can say about anybody or any team to Drummond to Drummond right uh or you know or Jackson or you know Jackson obviously but this is only going to get better when a the team plays together longer teams tend to gel over the course of an 82 game season Jackson and Drummond have pretty good chemistry now you got to remember they still only played like 30 games together i mean this is the you know the Miami Heat had the best talent in the league when they uh first gathered together with LeBron in South Beach and it took them like to the second round of the playoffs to really be firing on all cylinders. They were kind of hit and miss. It took them about 100 games to get there. So you got to remember the perspective of Jackson and, and this group playing together. They don't have a lot of experience playing together. It's only going to get better. And I think a huge factor is this team's biggest weakness th- thus far, in my opinion, is has been Steve Blake the the bench in general, but the bench, if, is if, terrible. The bench in general. But if you had the name, if you had the name one player that's playing big key minutes, that has been dreadful. It's been Steve Blake, who might have a minute or two spurt where he's good, but on overall he can't guard anybody. He's turning the ball over left and right. He can't shoot, so he's been a disaster. Brandon, how, bad, Brandon Jennings, how bad is Spencer Dinwiddie that he can't get playing over time over uh, those courts? It's a bad sign, and you like him and I don't. I've said that I but, like him, but, but I mean, how much worse could he be well, you than said, Blake? You said you liked him last week. But, well, I like his size, but, but, and I like the. I, I mean, look, we haven't seen a lot out of him, but he, how, how could he look, be worse? Brandon Jennings, we don't know what he will be like when he returns, but when he, and he'll probably not be as good as he was. It's an injury you've seen throughout history. Kalen Lucas was never the same, had the same injury. Uh, it's an injury that changes you permanently usually, but if he's even 80-90% of where he was at the time he went down, when people forget that last month or so before he went down, he was not Brandon Jennings of old, the, yeah, hi, I, you know, I'm going to score 18-20 a game, but shoot 35%, and I'm going to take my team out of the game with bad shots, and I he wasn't that guy. He was playing out of his mind, and not just for a week or two, it was like for a month. The guy was had turned over a new leaf under Van Gundy, and he went down. It was, it was tragic to see. But if Jennings, even if he's the old Jennings, you know, the, such an upgrade over Steve Blake, I think you look at the biggest weakness being the backup point guard then becomes a strength where Brandon Jennings, if he's, again, 80%, 90% of what he was when he went down, is maybe the best backup point guard in the league. I mean, without looking at every individual roster, he might be the best backup point guard in basketball, and certainly in that top three or four. So you you turn a weakness into a profound strength. You add extended time with cohesion with these players and Van Gundy's principles being hammered home. This is a team that has been shooting abnormally poor, that has their best bench player out, and is still learning to play together. And they're five and two against a, a pretty difficult schedule. So again. Defense isn't fluky. Their defense has been there. Their shooting percentage is actually, has been flukily bad. I mean, it's been bad to the point where there's no way it can go anything but up on a long enough timeline. No team has ever shot 36% for the entire season. So really, things have been against them. Their best bench player hurt. The schedule's been tough. They don't haven't played together that long. And the shooting is, is flukily, flukishly, I should say, low. So all these factors are going to turn – there's nothing fluke-ish about those five and two start. Now I'm not going to say they're going to win five out of every seven games they play going forward, 
Obviously, they're going to hit a stretch where they lose four or five, and, and you know everyone but the best, best teams go through those lulls. But I think it's important that we remember when they go through that stretch not to jump off any buildings. Now, you, want, you asked me what I think their uh, sort of ceiling is or where I see this team. This season, I like them next year and the year after when they improve the bench more. But for this year... You know, is 46 wins that crazy, assuming Jennings comes back as as scheduled in December and is functional? I don't think, you know, 45, 46 wins and, you know, six, seven seed in the playoffs is out of reach at all. And it wouldn't shock me if they gave a team fits in the playoffs, depending on the matchup. So their ceiling, I think, is a second round ouster. Uh, but I mean, if that's if they get to the second round in a year that their over under was 33 and a half wins. I, what I talk about being a year ahead of the uh, of the the plan. I, I I'm so impressed with this team. It's the most pleased I think I've ever been with how a team is run day to day from from top to bottom. Uh, I am in the piston slappy camp right now, and it's just great to see. It's so great to be pleased and to see teams doing things the right way. We get so much of the wrong way in this city. It, it's so refreshing to see the emphasis on analytics, the emphasis on scouting. The emphasis on being new age and, and progressive, adapt or die, as, as Billy Bean says in the movie Moneyball. I think that's where we're at. I, this is a team that is doing everything the right way, and you're seeing that play out on the court. And again, for all the reasons I stated, the best is yet to come. The best is definitely yet to come with this group. And if they add one or two pieces in free agency, significant pieces, which they should and will, Going forward, I'm pretty sure this I, this, this uh, diatribe is longer than Jim Caldwell at this point. Well, that's old presser yesterday. You can tell through the yeah, you're, passion you're of my words. I'm but excited. anyway, let's we got we only got five what? minutes left or four minutes. Well, left. okay, one more thing on the Pistons though. I'm just gonna add, no. I'm I'm gonna throw it to you. I'm gonna Jesus add, fucking. Christ. I'm gonna add, it's like a freight train. I'm gonna ask you. You should be excited that I'm that I'm this talkative on pain meds and I'm, I think the pain meds have kicked in. Oh, no, no, no. The pain meds, if anything, I'm drowsy. Let's give him a beer and see what happens. No, He's not the, driving. Uh, <laughs> then the speech will get really wild. But, no, I just want to ask you, do you think that the Pistons will be the next team to win a title in this town? It's hard to say. I, I, I think I, they're I a think good bet, though. Would it, they not be the favorite or co-favorite with the Wings? No, I think the Tigers still are. Really? Yeah, I would say okay. if you if you ask me who's the next team to win a title, I had to put a percentage on it, I'd say probably – 30%, 35% Tigers, just because they still have Miguel Cabrera. They still have an ability to have $175, $180 million payroll. Um, you know, I, I would probably put them first. I'd probably put the Pistons at this point second, the the Red Wings third, and then the I'd Lions. Put, yeah, I'd put them out of the wings. Zero. The wings look dreadful and the key pieces are getting old, but right. you know, we, so can, I'd put we the, can end on So that, I would say but. the Pistons second. Hopefully, you know, we got three games left on the, on the road trip. Hopefully they can win against Sacramento and the the uh, Lakers, you know, give the Clippers a battle. That's that's another back to back. Those two games in Los Angeles, but at least they're still in yep. the same city and they're not traveling in the same building. And then they come back to play Cleveland. So, you know, I, I don't think fifty games is out of uh, is out of the. It's not insane. Insane at this point, as long as they, as the caveat always is, they stay healthy and Jennings comes back and can right. give something because that bench is atrocious. Right. Offensively, if Jennings isn't back, it's... and he and, and and he can do whatever the hell he wants when he come, when, when when Jennings comes back. He's going to run the show. I, I can see him being like a Vinnie Johnson, as we talked about earlier, off the bench, a microwave, where he just comes in and everyone else is going to basically defer to him and hit, let him take over games on that second unit. So we'll see that. I do want to touch 
Uh, you talked about analytics and running, you know, doing things the way we want to see done with math and, uh, you know, uh, you know, not just a gut feeling and throwing things at the wall. The Tigers, over the uh, last couple days, have added another person to their analytics uh, department. They already had Sam Menzen, a young kid, I think 27 or 28 years old in that department. They added Christopher Long, uh, someone that you can follow, at Octonian on Twitter. And now they went out and got another piece, a guy who used to uh, be an analytics uh, executive for the Toronto Blue Jays and then went to Apple where I think he was – Hopefully he wasn't running Google Maps because that probably wouldn't – or excuse me, Apple Maps. That wouldn't be a good sign. But he was doing something, I think, on the app side of the Apple. Coming back to baseball to uh, be an executive with the Detroit Tigers, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this. But I'm wondering with all of this, you'd say, focus on hiring all of these people who believe in sabermetrics, is this going to trickle down – to the manager, who loves to bunt, loves not to use their best relief pitchers in high-leverage situations, are we going to finally see this on the field adapted? I mean, you would hope so and think so. I would, I would have to think that a guy like Osmus, who still is a lame duck manager now, who narrowly escaped the firing that we had reported and everyone else had subsequently reported, it, it, it's an outstanding to me, that they would retain him under any circumstances other than a discussion taking place between him and Avila where it was made clear that they're going more towards analytics. You would have to think that came up. It's something that Dombrowski didn't value and would have never uh, broached with Osmus. Avila is a very blunt guy and has made very clear with his article with Tony Paul, with his uh, hirings, which speak louder than words, they're going in a different direction analytically. I can't believe that that would not have been passed along to Osmus. And I think we'll know pretty quick. I mean, in that first or second game, if we're bunting in the second or third inning, uh, if we're the, we're the Tigers, we're going to know we're heading in a bad direction. This is the only hope I have, and maybe I'm being naive and trying to talk myself into this, but the combination of him being there with one year left with you know, a lame, like you said, a lame duck. The fact that they've hired, you know, they promoted Menzen, they hired Christopher Long, they've now hired this Jay Sartori. Um, combined with, if Osmus has a brain, which he went to Dartmouth, so we hope he does, taking a look at the managerial hirings other than Dusty Baker uh, this offseason, if he wants another job in baseball after this, if he does get fired eventually, it's not going in the gut, the, you know, the guys with their manager with their gut, the managers who bun a lot, the managers who are not, you know, using saber metrics. People are going to look at this. How do you mesh with the front office, which is putting an emphasis on this? I, I'm just hoping that we don't see people bunting to get to Miguel Cabrera. Like I said, that we don't see um, a lineup where. Guys who can't get on base are at the top. That we, you know, please have some control, Al Avila, over this guy you kept. I'm grateful that it's not Ron Gardner because I don't think you could hire Bill James, Billy Bean, uh, you know, every Saber, you know, Keith Law. And that's why you, we think I don't think so, you know we think that's why Gardner didn't happen. By the way, 
is that I, we believe that subject was broached. We're still working on it. I promise that story will come out eventually when I get all the pieces complete. But we believe that Garden Hire was not hired because, in part, Avila made very clear that this organization was going in a different direction in terms of embracing analytics, sabermetrics, and whatnot. I, I, again, I don't see them retaining Osmus without it being made very clear. I would, I would, I would literally be shocked. I mean, I, I, I would be shocked if we didn't see a massive change in Brad Osmus's managerial style. And, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'm willing to bet that Osmus has made clear he's willing to adapt, and he has admitted in the press, Avila has said publicly, that there are mistakes that he has made. That's, I, I think that's very telling. I think that conversation has taken place. It's been made clear, and I think you're going to see a new manager in there. Uh, same guy, but uh, a different style. All right, well, we'll wrap it up so we can get down to the Joe to see the Sergei Fedorov Hall of Fame, whatever it is. Um, maybe by next week when we do the show, Darren O'Day and Joaquim Soria will be on the team. That, that would that would probably help. I want O'Day. That's the guy I want. I'll take both of them, please. Oh, yeah, both, obviously. But you know, O'Day, I, O'Day is like the guy that right. I just want to shut down eighth eighth inning guy. You know what? I would, just give me the two of them. Give me Samarja at this point now based on what the new – uh, thought processes about how much they're going to spend, and just hope Fulmer and Norris can start and, and, and add something, and then maybe the deadline you make a trade for another starter. Who knows? So, I mean, the Royals, have gotten, fix the Royals have gotten by with a, a you know decent rotation. A, again, I, I want I, the Royals mold is not a fluke. Uh, you know, you got to fix this bullpen. I would t- I yeah. would take a couple of great bullpen arms before I would take a couple of those second tier starters. Now, if you're talking about Price and Grinky, that's different. Right. Uh, but, you know, give me O'Day and Soria and someone else over, you know, Jeff Samarja and, you know, if I had to choose one or the other. But uh, One last we, we, announcement. We, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so two weeks from tonight, the week of Thanksgiving, uh, I'm planning on going through with the John Morosi uh, haircut. So if anyone out there who's listening to the show knows anyone who can do engravings into a head, um, we'll do it live here on the show. And you have to do this because you you tweeted out that you would have his name carved into your head or shaved into your head if the Nationals didn't make the yeah. postseason, which is yeah. laughable now in hindsight because it's not even close. Thank God that I'm a genius and said at the time. But this time. is the first I that said, Jessica's hearing of this. I said at. I can't wait to see oh, this. Yeah, he, <laughs> he's a man of his word. You can say That's what you want about him. He's not, a lie. he's not a liar. <laughs> uh, you can say a lot of things about Moss. He's, a, he's an honest guy. You know, I said, at the, fault. I said at I said at the That's time that their lineup was flawed. And I, I thought they would make the playoffs. Don't get me wrong. But I, I thought you were nuts. They had for, the best starting staff, and they had the MVP in Bryce Harper. Their and they line, didn't their come close. Stunk. They, they had Harper and Worth, who's hurt all the time and is not that good. And John then, Paul no. Morosi has made 100 bad predictions. The one I make a stupid proclamation yep. that I'll have his asinine name engraved onto my head had to be this one. He still gave your prediction an A-. minus. Maybe a B plus. Uh, so, if anyone out there knows anyone who's artistic and engraving heads, uh, email me DetroitSportsRag at Gmail. Contact me on Twitter. We're gonna have to do some due diligence on this person. I don't really want to be bald. I don't even know. I think I'm just gonna put John on this side and Morosi on this. I, I don't know. Yeah, the reboot with Henson's gonna be just bald versus bald. <laughs> uh, 
All right. Well, we I'm not a good-looking I mean, guy with a full head of hair. Uh, this is going to be you're bad. A, you're a good-looking guy. No, no, no. You'll still have hair. You'll just have someone's name tattooed on your head like an idiot. So it's going to be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I think, it will. I think I, Jessica's looking forward more. To I'm the, really excited about this. <laughs> do you know anyone who can do this? No, but I will be looking. Look, yeah. I probably. I think do Jessica know will find somebody. someone before us. I probably will because I really don't want you to like not do. No, it. I'm going to no, do it. It has to. Okay. Oh, he's he's going to do oh, it. I'm going to do it. Even if even if he finds someone bad. It's, it's going to be done. Uh, yeah. He'll yeah, right. never hear the end of it. If he doesn't do it, he's better off just getting it over with. Uh, we are going to wrap up, but uh, Jessica, thank you as always. Uh, thank we would be you guys w- for the entertainment. No problem. You're here putting up with us uh, once a week. We really always appreciate that. So thank you. You've always always been really cool with us and patient with us, so we appreciate that. Um, well, hopefully next week you won't be walking like a 95-year-old man at all seasons. Yeah, I need... Or, excuse I me, need, not all seasons. I should mention your dad's place. I yeah, shouldn't mention thanks. competition. Yeah. What's your dad's... Birmingham, or excuse me, Bloomfield? Sure. There's multiple. Okay. Uh, Premier Healthcare Management. But, yeah, uh, hopefully I won't need Bill Keenis to escort me around, like, <laughs> be my Waylon Smithers. But thank you all for listening, Moss. Uh, all right, we're going down let's, to Joe. Let's go see the let's wings. Go. Let's go, Wings. This is a previously recorded episode.